Section 4 of Letters of Pliny by Pliny the Younger Translated by William Melmoth Revised by F. C. T. Bosenkay This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Andrew Coleman Section 4 Letters 22 to 25 Letter 22 You guessed correctly. I am much engaged in pleading before the hundred. The business there is more fatiguing than pleasant. Trifling, inconsiderable cases mostly. It is very seldom that anything worth speaking of, either from the importance of the question or the rank of the persons concerned, comes before them. There are very few lawyers either whom I take any pleasure in working with. The rest. A parcel of impudent young fellows, many of whom one knows nothing whatever about, come here to get some practice in speaking and conduct themselves so forwardly and with such utter want of deference that my friend attilius exactly hit it i think when he made the observation that boys set out at the bar with cases in the court of the hundred as they do at school with homer intimating that at both places they begin where they should end but in former times so my elders tell me no youth even of the best families was allowed in unless introduced by some person of consular dignity as things are now since every fence of modesty and decorum is broken down and all distinctions are levelled and confounded the present young generation so far from waiting to be introduced break in of their own free will the audience at their heels are fit attendants upon such orators, a low rabble of hired mercenaries, supplied by contract. They get together in the middle of the court, where the dole is dealt round them as openly as if they were in a dining-room, and at this noble price they run from court to court. The Greeks have an appropriate name in their language for this sort of people importing that they are applauders by profession and we stigmatize them with the opprobrious title of table flatterers yet the dirty business alluded to increases every day it was only yesterday two of my domestic officers mere striplings were hired to cheer somebody or other at three denarii apiece that is what the highest eloquence goes for upon these terms we fill as many benches as we please and gather a crowd this is how those rending shouts are raised as soon as the individual standing up in the middle of the ring gives the signal for you must know these honest fellows who understand nothing of what is said or if they did could not hear it would be at a loss without a signal how to time their applause for many of them don't hear a syllable, and are as noisy as any of the rest. If, at any time, you should happen to be passing by when the court is sitting, and feel at all interested to know how any speaker is acquitting himself, you have no occasion to give yourself the trouble of getting up on the judge's platform. No need to listen. It is easy enough to find out, for you may be quite sure he that gets most applause deserves it the least. Largius Licinus, 
was the first to introduce this fashion, but then he went no further than to go round and solicit an audience. I know, I remember hearing this from my tutor Quintilian. I used, he told me, to go and hear Domitius Affa, and as he was pleading once before the hundred in his usual slow and impressive manner, hearing, close to him, a most immoderate and unusual noise, and being a good deal surprised at this, he left off, the noise ceased, and he began again. He was interrupted a second time, and a third. At last he inquired who it was that was speaking. He was told Licinus, upon which he broke off the case, exclaiming, Eloquence is no more. The truth is, it had only begun to decline then, when in Affa's opinion it no longer existed, whereas now it is almost extinct. I am ashamed to tell you of the mincing and affected pronunciation of the speakers, and of the shrill-voiced applause with which their effusions are received. Nothing seems wanting to complete this sing-song performance except claps, or other cymbals and tambourines. Howlings, indeed, for I can call such applause, which would be indecent even in the theatre by no other name, abound in plenty. Up to this time, the interest of my friends, and the consideration of my early time of life, have kept me in this court, as I am afraid they might think I was doing it to shirk work rather than to avoid these indecencies, were I to leave it just yet. However, I go there less frequently than I did, and am thus effecting a gradual retreat. Farewell. Letter 23 To Gallus You are surprised that I am so fond of my Laurentine, or, if you prefer the name, my Lawrence but you will cease to wonder when i acquaint you with the beauty of the villa the advantages of its situation and the extensive view of the sea-coast it is only seventeen miles from rome so that when i have finished my business in town i can pass my evenings here after a good satisfactory day's work there are two different roads to it if you go by that of laurentum you must turn off at the fourteenth milestone if by Astia, at the eleventh. Both of them are sandy in places, which makes it a little heavier and longer by carriage, but short and easy on horseback. The landscape affords plenty of variety, the view in some places being closed in by woods, in others extending over broad meadows, where numerous flocks of sheep, and herds of cattle, which the severity of the winter has driven from the mountains, fatten in the spring warmth, and on the rich pasturage. My villa is of a convenient size, without being expensive to keep up. The courtyard in front is plain, but not mean, through which you enter porticoes shaped into the form of the letter D, enclosing a small but cheerful area between. These make a capital retreat for bad weather, not only as they are shut in with windows, but particularly as they are sheltered by a projection of the roof. From the middle of these porticoes 
you pass into a bright pleasant inner court, and out of that into a handsome hall running out towards the seashore, so that when there is a southwest breeze, it is gently washed with the waves, which spend themselves at its base. On every side of this hall there are either folding doors or windows equally large, by which means you have a view from the front and the two sides, of three different seas, as it were. From the back you see the middle court, the portico, and the area, and from another point you look through the portico into the courtyard, and out upon the woods and distant mountains beyond. On the left hand of this hall, a little further from the sea, lies a large drawing-room, and beyond that a second of a smaller size, which has one window to the rising, and another to the setting sun. This as well has a view of the sea, but more distant and agreeable. The angle formed by the projection of the dining-room with this drawing-room retains and intensifies the warmth of the sun, and this forms our winter quarters and family gymnasium, which is sheltered from all the winds except those which bring on clouds but the clear sky comes out again before the warmth has gone out of the place adjoining this angle is a room forming the segment of a circle the windows of which are so arranged as to get the sun all through the day in the walls are contrived a sort of cases containing a collection of authors who can never be read too often next to this is a bedroom connected with it by a raised passage furnished with pipes which supply at a wholesome temperature and distribute to all parts of this room the heat they receive the rest of this side of the house is appropriated to the use of my slaves and freedmen but most of the rooms in it are respectable enough to put my guests into in the opposite wing is a most elegant tastefully fitted up bedroom next to which lies another which you may call either a large bedroom or a modified dining-room it is very warm and light not only from the direct rays of the sun but by the reflection from the sea beyond this is a bedroom with an ante-room the height of which renders it cool in summer its thick walls warm in winter for it is sheltered every way from the winds to this apartment another ante-room is joined by one common wall from thence you enter into the wide and spacious cooling-room belonging to the bath from the opposite walls of which two curved basins are thrown out so to speak which are more than large enough if you consider that the sea is close at hand adjacent to this is the anointing-room then the sweating-room and beyond that the bath-heating-room adjoining our two other little bathrooms, elegantly rather than sumptuously fitted up. Annexed to them is a warm bath of wonderful construction, in which one can swim and take a view of the sea at the same time. Not far from this stands the tennis court, which lies open to the warmth of the afternoon sun. From thence you go up a sort of turret, which has two rooms below, with the same number above, besides a dining-room commanding a very extensive lookout onto the sea, the coast, and the beautiful villas scattered along the shoreline. At the other end is a second turret, 
containing a room that gets the rising and setting sun. Behind this is a large storeroom and granary, and underneath a spacious dining room where only the murmur and break of the sea can be heard, even in a storm. It looks out upon the garden, and the gestatio running round the garden. The gestatio is bordered round with box, and where that is decayed, with rosemary. For the box, wherever sheltered by the buildings, grows plentifully, but where it lies open and exposed to the weather and spray from the sea, though at some distance from the latter, it quite withers up. Next the gestatio, and running along inside it, is a shady vine plantation, the path of which is so soft and easy to the tread that you may walk barefoot upon it. The garden is chiefly planted with fig and mulberry trees, to which this soil is as favourable as it is averse from all others. Here is a dining-room, which, though it stands away from the sea, enjoys the garden view which is just as pleasant. Two apartments run round the back part of it, the windows of which look out upon the entrance of the villa, and into a fine kitchen-garden. From here extends an enclosed portico which, from its great length, you might take for a public one. It has a range of windows on either side, but more on the side facing the sea, and fewer on the garden side, and these, single windows and alternate with the opposite rows. In calm, clear weather, these are all thrown open, but if it blows, those on the weather side are closed, whilst those away from the wind can remain open without any inconvenience. Before this enclosed portico lies a terrace fragrant with the scent of violets, and warmed by the reflection of the sun from the portico, which, while it retains the rays, keeps away the northeast wind, and it is as warm on this side as it is cool on the side opposite. In the same way it is a protection against the wind from the southwest, and thus, in short, by means of its several sides, breaks the force of the winds from whatever quarter they may blow. These are some of its winter advantages. They are still more appreciable in the summer-time, for at that season it throws a shade upon the terrace during the whole of the forenoon and upon the adjoining portion of the gestatio and garden in the afternoon, casting a greater or less shade on this side or on that, as the day increases or decreases. But the portico itself is coolest, just at the time when the sun is at its hottest, that is, when the rays fall directly upon the roof. Also, by opening the windows, you let in the western breezes in a free current, which prevents the place getting oppressive with close and stagnant air. At the upper end of the terrace and portico stands a detached garden building, which I call my favourite, my favourite indeed, as I put it up myself. It contains a very warm winter room, one side of which looks down upon the terrace, while the other has a view of the sea, and both lie exposed to the sun. The bedroom opens onto the covered portico by means of folding doors, while its window looks out upon the sea. On that side next the sea, and facing the middle wall, is formed a very elegant little recess, 
which by means of transparent windows and a curtain drawn to or aside can be made part of the adjoining room or separated from it. It contains a couch and two chairs. As you lie upon this couch, from where your feet are, you get a peep of the sea. Looking behind you, see the neighbouring villas, and from the head you have a view of the woods. These three views may be seen either separately, from so many different windows, or blended together in one. Adjoining this is a bedroom which neither the servants' voices, the murmuring of the sea, the glare of lightning, nor daylight itself can penetrate, unless you open the windows. This profound tranquillity and seclusion are occasioned by a passage separating the wall of this room from that of the garden, and thus, by means of this intervening space, every noise is drowned. Annexed to this is a tiny stove-room, which by opening or shutting a little aperture, lets out or retains the heat from underneath, according as you require. Beyond this lie a bedroom and anteroom, which enjoy the sun, though obliquely indeed, from the time it rises till the afternoon. When I retire to this garden summer-house, I fancy myself a hundred miles away from my villa, and take a special pleasure in it at the feast of the Saturnalia, when, by the license of that festive season, every other part of my house resounds with my servant's mirth. Thus I neither interrupt their amusement, nor they my studies. Amongst the pleasures and conveniences of this situation, there is one drawback, and that is the want of running water. But then there are wells about the place, or other springs, for they lie close to the surface. And, Altogether, the quality of this coast is remarkable, for dig where you may, you meet, upon the first turning up of the ground, with a spring of water, quite pure, not in the least salt, although so near the sea. The neighbouring woods supply us with all the fuel we require, the other necessaries Ostia furnishes. Indeed, to a moderate man, even the village, between which and my house there is only one villa, would supply all ordinary requirements. It has three public baths, which are a great convenience if it happen that friends come in unexpectedly, or make too short a stay to allow time in preparing my own. The whole coast is very pleasantly sprinkled with villas, either in rows or detached, which whether looking at them from the sea or the shore present the appearance of so many different cities the strand is sometimes after a long calm perfectly smooth though in general through the storms driving the waves upon it it is rough and uneven i cannot boast that our sea is plentiful in choice fish however it supplies us with capital soles and prawns but as to other kinds of provisions, my villa aspires to excel even inland countries, particularly in milk, for the cattle come up there from the meadows in large numbers in pursuit of water and shade. Tell me now, have I not good reason for living in, staying in, loving such a retreat, which, if you feel no appetite for, you must be morbidly attached to town? and I only wish you would feel inclined to come down to it, 
that to so many charms with which my little villa abounds, it might have the very considerable addition of your company to recommend it. Farewell. Letter 24. To Cerealis. You advise me to read my late speech before an assemblage of my friends. I shall do so, as you advise it, though I have strong scruples. Compositions of this sort lose, I well know, all their force and fire, and even their very name almost, by a mere recital. It is the solemnity of the tribunal, the concourse of advocates, the suspense of the event, the fame of the several pleaders concerned, the different parties formed amongst the audience, add to this the gestures, the pacing, I, the actual running to and fro of the speaker, the body working in harmony with every inward emotion, that conspire to give a spirit and a grace to what he delivers. This is the reason that those who plead sitting, though they retain most of the advantages possessed by those who stand up to plead, weaken the whole force of their oratory. The eyes and hands of the reader, those important instruments of graceful elocution, being engaged, it is no wonder that the attention of the audience droops, without anything extrinsic to keep it up, no allurements of gesture to attract, no smart, stinging impromptus to enliven. To these general considerations, I must add this particular disadvantage which attends the speech in question, that it is of the argumentative kind, and it is natural for an author to infer that what he wrote with labour will not be read with pleasure. For who is there so unprejudiced as not to prefer the attractive and sonorous to the sombre and unornamented in style? It is very unreasonable that there should be any distinction. However, it is certain that judges generally expect one style of pleading, and the audience another. Whereas an auditor ought to be affected only by those parts which would especially strike him, were he in the place of the judge. Nevertheless, it is possible the objections which lie against this piece may be surmounted in consideration of the novelty it has to recommend it. The novelty, I mean with respect to us. For the Greek orators have a method of reasoning upon a different occasion, not altogether unlike that which I have employed. They, when they would throw out a law, as contrary to some former one unrepealed, argue by comparing those together. So I, on the contrary, endeavour to prove that the crime, which I was insisting upon as falling within the intent and meaning of the law relating to public extortions, was agreeable, not only to that law, but likewise to other laws of the same nature. Those who are ignorant of the jurisprudence of their country can have no taste for reasonings of this kind. But those who are not ought to be proportionably the more favourable in the judgments they pass upon them. I shall endeavour, therefore, if you persist in my reciting it, 
to collect as learned an audience as I can. But before you determine this point, do weigh impartially the different considerations I have laid before you, and then decide as reason shall direct, for it is reason that must justify you. Obedience to your commands will be a sufficient apology for me. Farewell. Letter 25 To Calvisius Give me a penny, and I will tell you a story worth gold. Or rather, you shall hear two or three, for one brings to my mind another. It makes no difference with which I begin. Verania, the widow of Piso, the Piso, I mean, whom Galba adopted, lay extremely ill, and Regulus paid her a visit. By the way, mark the assurance of the man, visiting a lady who detested him herself, and to whose husband he was a declared enemy. Even barely to enter her house would have been bad enough, but he actually went and seated himself by her bedside, and began inquiring on what day and hour she was born. Being informed of these important particulars, he composes his countenance, fixes his eyes, mutters something to himself, counts upon his fingers, and all this merely to keep the poor sick lady in suspense. When he had finished, you are, he says, in one of your climacterics. However, you will get over it. But for your greater satisfaction, I will consult with a certain diviner, whose skill I have frequently experienced. Accordingly, off he goes, performs a sacrifice, and returns with the strongest assurances that the omens confirmed what he had promised on the part of the stars. Upon this, the good woman, whose danger made her credulous, calls for her will, and gives Regulus a legacy. She grew worse shortly after this, and in her last moments exclaimed against this wicked, treacherous, and worse than perjured wretch who had sworn falsely to her by his own son's life. But imprecations of this sort are as common with Regulus as they are impious, and he continually devotes that unhappy youth to the curse of those gods whose vengeance his own frauds every day provoke. Velius Blisus, a man of consular rank, and remarkable for his immense wealth, in his last illness was anxious to make some alterations in his will. Regulus, who had lately endeavoured to insinuate himself into his good graces, hoped to get something from the new will, and accordingly addresses himself to his physicians, and conjures them to exert all their skill to prolong the poor man's life. But after the will was signed, he changes his character, reversing his tone. How long? says he to these very same physicians, do you intend keeping this man in misery? Since you cannot preserve his life, why do you grudge him the happy release of death? Blysus dies, and, as if he had overheard every word that Regulus has said, has not left him one farthing. And now, have you had enough? Or are you for the third? 
according to rhetorical canon. If so, Regulus will supply you. You must know, then, that Aurelia, a lady of remarkable accomplishments, purposing to execute her will, had put on her smartest dress for the occasion. Regulus, who was present as a witness, turned to the lady and, Pray, says he, leave me these fine clothes. Aurelia thought the man was joking, but he insisted upon it perfectly seriously, and, to be brief, obliged her to open her will, and insert the dress she had on as a legacy to him, watching as she wrote, and then looking over it to see that it was all down correctly. Aurelia, however, is still alive, though Regulus, no doubt, when he solicited this bequest, expected to enjoy it pretty soon. The fellow gets estates, he gets legacies conferred upon him, as if he really deserved them. But why should I go on dwelling upon this, in a city where wickedness and knavery have, for this time past, received the same, do I say, nay, even greater encouragement than modesty and virtue? Regulus is a glaring instance of this truth, who, from a state of poverty, has by a train of villainies acquired such immense riches that he once told me, upon consulting the omens to know how soon he should be worth sixty millions of sesterces, he found them so favourable as to portend he should possess double that sum. And possibly he may, if he continues to dictate wills for other people in this way. A sort of fraud, in my opinion, the most infamous of any. Farewell. End of section 4